Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Hello, 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 and welcome to this episode. Thank you so much for listening today. I get to speak to Pandora Sykes today, who is a journalist, a writer, a podcaster. You have probably heard of her from the incredibly wonderful and successful podcast, The High Low, and she also has her new series, which is supporting her new book. And the podcast series is called Doing It Right. And at the time of recording, this was actually at the top of the podcast chart. So I was very privileged and lucky to get to speak to her. Her book is called How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? And I absolutely loved it. It's such a good read. I'm so impressed by Pandora's scope of knowledge and understanding and ability to tie ideas together. I think you're going to love it. But we talk about this idea of, you know, how do we know we're doing it right? How do we know we're doing it right? We talk about FOMO and the need to be productive all the time. We get into the topic of self-care and whether, you know, does it really work or is it actually just another industry that's profiting from our misery? And we also talk about why so many of us feel like a failure. So before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you about my app, the Anxiety Solution app. Have you checked it out yet? The reviews are frankly amazing. We've been really blown away by the response that we've had to this app and how much it's helping people. I'm just going to share a review with you that comes from Veronica. She says, I started using this app just over a week ago. I was spending hours scrolling Instagram, feeling unmotivated, unproductive, exhausted and apathetic. Feelings of not being good enough at work and my friend group, drinking too much coffee and generally unwell. I started using the Anxiety Solution app out of curiosity as I really like Chloe's podcast, Karma You and follow her on Instagram. The app really works. Only a couple of days in and I can see tangible results. I feel energetic, motivated, hardly go on any social media, don't scroll at all and generally I'm feeling great. Best money spent. Now I paid for a year's subscription, changed my daily routine and look forward to the day ahead. So thank you so much Veronica for that review firstly. You can check out the Anxiety Solution app. You'll find the link on my website karmau.com. You can find it in the app store as well. And there's a free trial so you can try it out and see if you like it. So please do check that out. And let's get into the episode with Pandora Sykes. 
So welcome, Pandora. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you today? How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. How are you handling everything in terms of lockdown and um, you know, being at home more? How is, how is all of that for you right now? I'm used to spending loads of time at home because I work at home and I've got young kids. So home is, you know, I'm really lucky. Home is my safe place, not just physically, but mentally as well. Um, so there hasn't been an enormous change in terms of how I would spend the bulk of my time. Uh, obviously, and this is such an overused word, it's just been very surreal because even if you spend a lot of time in your home, you still know that everyone else is out and about. <laughs> um, it's not weird that I'm in my home for me. It's weird that everyone else is in their homes as well. Um, but no, I've been, you know, I've been so fortunate during the lockdown and there are like lots of, you know, lots of things have gone on for us, but um, we are, you know, me and my husband are both still working and our children are healthy. So I mean, you know, what more could you ask for right now, to be honest? Yeah, definitely. And I think, I wonder if when you write books, it's quite good training for this sort of situation. You spend a lot of time at home. You spend a lot of time, every day is the same. It's like writers are made for, <laughs> made for lockdown. Yeah, I, I was on a very tight deadline as well. So I was just at my desk for like 12 hour days for two months, pretty much. And then I had a baby in December and then went back to Ed, so like didn't really leave the house, then went back to the deadline. So yeah, no, it's, um, I'm, I'm well trained for it, yeah. <laughs> good, good stuff. Um, congratulations on your new book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? It's absolutely brilliant, really funny, incredibly relatable. I'm sure. Can you share a bit about what it is about? Yeah, so How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? Which is a pretty long title that I'm already slightly uh, regretting. Um, is it basically started from a, a, a bunch of essays that I wanted to write about modern life. And at the beginning, I didn't really think there was any overarching theme between them. And then as soon as I started kind of holding the ideas together with one another, it, it became quite apparent that there were certain things that were really coming through that really interested me, which is this idea of choice being a bind as much as a blessing, that in a culture of endless choice, um, you don't necessarily always feel liberated, you sometimes feel addled. And I don't mean in terms of like basic fundamental freedoms, you know, everyone needs a level of societal choice and to not have that is abhorrent. But above that, above the necessary choice, there are lots of ridiculously small choices that now exist. And I think we've just been flooded. We've been flooded with online e-stores. We've been flooded with box sets, um, flooded with, you know, at-home apps and information, a torrent of information, you know, the age of overload. We've been flooded with everyone else's opinions all the time. You know, we're sort of drowning in a, in, in a sea of other people's opinions. So I suppose that was what kind of brought me to that at the beginning was the paradox of choice. And then I wanted to look at some things, some serious, some more silly, that I thought there was a larger story in. Um, not all of them made the cut. I was fascinated by Tupperware but an essay on Tupperware did not end up in the collection. Although I am still fascinated by Tupperware. The idea that there are even Tupperware parties is quite strange to me. Um, but yeah, they started often in quite lighthearted places like 
I find my phone incredibly anxiety making. I don't have telephobia or nomophobia. I have the opposite. I have a phobia of being with my phone. So then I wanted to look more about what that says about the way we communicate. And like most of the things that I was looking at in the book, it turns out that that's not a new thing. We've always been one step behind communication. So it's never quite serving us cognitively. It's always pushing us a little bit further. And I was very keen to write about these things, not to just do this sort of, oh, here are all the problems that millennial women have, is I wanted to refract those problems or not even problems, kind of myths and anxieties and trivialities through a millennial lens, but ultimately look at the fact that all of these issues are generational and it's, it's up to, it's the responsibility of each generation to uh, sift through them and to look at what serves us and what doesn't. Yeah, to me, to me, reading it is it's fascinating because it it kind of summarizes this all these complexities that we're dealing with, and I think it I think it helps you know well help me to feel less alone in that it's there's so many of these things going on and so many people will be dealing dealing with these complicated things in life and just to to have them kind of have it sort of spoken and, and talked about is really powerful. Um, you talk a lot about um, kind of burnout and the pressure to always be busy, this need to be productive. Do you, do you almost think that, that modern life is, is, is anxiety provoking in itself? Just, just the fact of modern life. It's like, of course, we're feeling anxious because of all these things that are, that are going on. I think quite possibly, yeah. And I think we're at a real kind of crunch point in terms of something that I find really interesting and probably is a bit similar to how this idea that choice is not only good is this idea that progress is only good, but in order to gain certain things, we have to lose other things. And I think we've forgotten that there's always that trade-off in life and that we just expect things to get better and quicker and cheaper and seamless and shinier, including ourselves, without realising there's a price to pay. And I'm so pleased to, to hear you say that it made you feel less alone because that, that was something I really wanted to um, try and get to the heart of, not, not to try and be relatable to everyone because I don't think anything can be relatable to everyone but definitely to bring together lots of strands that might be making people feel alone and to kind of find that commonality but yes I mean we, we know that more people are feeling anxious than ever because the global statistics are I mean what 264 million people worldwide suffer from an anxiety disorder and I have intense periods of anxiety myself with burnout, that one, I mean, maybe it will be controversial, but I wanted to slightly dig a little bit deeper because I felt like we were talking about burnout a lot, quite, um, quite casually. And it's not the same as being really tired or really stressed. It's a kind of combination of being very stressed, very overworked and feeling without purpose. So believing that the work you do holds no value. And that's when I personally realized that I didn't have burnout because I never got to a point where I thought that the job I did had no purpose and that I had no value. I was very tired and I was very stressed. Um, 
but I didn't lose purpose. And so I wanted to really sort of disentangle these particular types of stress because I do worry that the conversations we have um, become very flattening. Um, you know, to talk about every sort of work stress as burnout or to talk about every concern or moment of self-awareness or self-doubt as anxiety, you know, for the only to exist in these one words, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, I suppose burnout can mean so many different things because when I think of burnout, I almost think of like adrenal fatigue, like where someone can't get out of bed in the morning and they're, I've heard of people not being able to get out of bed for, you know, several years because they're so burned out. Um, so yeah, it's good to have, it's interesting to hear different, different kind of distinctions on what that is. I think, I think I've heard there's lots of books about burnout are going to be coming out in the next uh, year or so. It's definitely something that's on people's radars more and more. Well, Anne Helen Peterson, who wrote the piece for Buzzfeed about burnout, that kind of started this conversation I think she's got one coming out so that will be the I just think we need to be careful about terms suffering from overextension um mm. I I've worried sometimes as well that we've seen that happen with depression so people who don't suffer from depression will say oh I'm so depressed today rather than I'm so sad and I worry that with words like depression or anxiety and burnout that we'll rid them of their of their meaning and of their impact and so that's not to dismiss the people that do have anxiety or do have burnout or do have depression but when we chuck these words around so much they it becomes a bit like the boy who cried wolf we're going to miss the instances where we really need to be paying attention yeah that's so true yeah definitely it happens with anxiety here from a lot of people saying anxiety has become fashionable or something which I, I don't think is very helpful but yeah Totally. Yeah. And I think that's really dangerous because that has seen uh, some people not seek help because they've been told uh, by the sort of current dialogue that everyone's anxious and it's normal. Um, and that's, you know, let people get into states, I think, where they have just assumed that everyone feels like this because they're being told that everyone does. And um, yeah, that can be dangerous, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it just comes down to what we quite often do as human beings is try and make things all or nothing um, or kind of generalize or put people into boxes and labels and actually yes. life just isn't like that, is it? No. And the thing is, as I can see why that happens, it's, it's much easier to talk about things and to understand things when they're categorizable. I mean, I wrote a whole essay about how kind of womanhood has been divided into categorizable sort of flippable Rolex of pop culture stereotypes, but we're, we're not going to get anywhere for as long as we try and do that and it has a really damaging impact on the people who are categorized as well yeah definitely I really wanted to um talk to you about the sort of the concept of wellness your book starts off talking hilarious <laughs> in a hilarious fashion about wellness and I have to say I think I might be one of those people that would fit in quite well in Tulum <laughs> with the crystals and things so I was laughing a lot of that at that um from the way you describe it in the book and it makes a lot of sense to me it almost seems like wellness is actually quite unwell um is that what you is that what you think is that your take on it I think where I was really keen to try and um draw distinctions is I don't want anyone to feel ashamed um 
and I don't think there's anything wrong with believing in the kind of various tenets of wellness of you know crystals or um your matcha teas or, or, or things like that where I think wellness is dangerous is as a industry as a business because it quite literally exists and trades off insecurity and it is doing a lot of rebranding of ancient things like diet culture and um the idea that a woman has to present a certain way she has to be whole and pure and clean and these things are historic they're not anything new and I also I think that those people some people who get very invested in wellness are unwell yes because I think it can turn into orthorexia which is obviously an obsession with healthy eating or it can psychologically become quite controlling but the other issue I really have with wellness is that it's a class issue it's an economic issue because a lot of the things that are extolled as the benefits of wellness are really expensive which means and I quote a writer called Amanda Mull the wellest among us are the ones that have access to wellness and so in that sense there isn't anything inherently wrong with wellness but when it's used as a way to somehow improve the lives of society at large then no I don't think it's appropriate at all I don't see how it can address systemic social issues it's wellness is not going to save um obesity for example because obesity is much more of a multifactorial social issue it's got much more in common with poverty than it does with uh, turmeric lattes is that how you say the word i still don't even know if it's turmeric or turmeric which is american <laughs> yeah yeah i think there is that sense of oh if we could buy this uh yeah crystal or gong gong bath or something and that will somehow magic away our problems but things are more complicated and i guess I guess it kind of links to self-care, which I know you, you talk about as well in the book about, I suppose, self-care. If you're saying that to, to a working mum who's got kids, who has two jobs, so just take a bath, then that's not going to be accessible for, for her. And yeah, I think there needs to be a, a wider discussion about, about what that is. I think self-care is, um, is, a, is a brilliant thing when you are doing small things to make you feel sane. I think when self-care becomes a sort of distraction or uh, an indulgence that allows us to avoid more serious conversations or to consider kind of other people, you know, this whole sort of invocation of, oh, I'm doing it for my self-care. Um, that's great, but what's what's the self-care of the rest of society like? And And that's why I kind of fell in love a bit with something Joan Didion said when she wrote an, an essay in the 60s is that actually what we need is self-respect and that to me is a much more kind of rounded and wholehearted way to look at how we look after ourselves is uh, that we have respect for our minds and our bodies and also the minds and bodies of other people um, rather than it just being something that turns inward I think it has to be something that we turn outward yeah i think yeah so so many of our problems are kind of societal things and it can't be fixed by having a bath in some epsom salts or then maybe that is the thing that you need you know from time to time as well i love a bath don't get me wrong <laughs> i just don't think they can solve everything yeah yeah so what so when you say self-respect what does that mean to you how how do you tune into that 
Well, I'm still working on it, but I think it's a combination of a few different things. I think it's being in tune with yourself, what you need, but also what you can give. And I think it's operating from a place of conviction and quiet confidence and contentment. And those sound like quite gentle things, but I think they are the most aspirational things. I don't think we should be striving for, which I feel like we have been seeing societally. I don't think we should be striving for uh, a fully optimized life or a technicolor, Instagrammable, perfect, seamless, friction-free life. I think we should be aiming for contentment and calm and conviction and self-respect and those are hard things to attain at the moment because I think it's very difficult to hold on to your have total conviction in yourself when we are exposed through a torrent of information through social media to what everyone else thinks all the time so even if you don't realize it you are subconsciously absorbing what everyone else thinks what everyone else is doing 24 7 and so then it becomes very hard, I think, to have conviction and uh, go to have self-respect. Mm. Yeah, that, that idea of self-optimization, this kind of, what a huge amount of pressure to be putting on ourselves if we're thinking about everything's got to be optimized. And um, one, one quote I really liked from the book was, we think that having a bad day is our failure to harness something. And to me, that just really struck a chord in that there is this, this real message that we seem to be receiving from each other or from social media or wherever that, that we're kind of a failure if things are not perfect, if things are not going well, if we're not, you know, crushing it at life or whatever, you know, the term is. Um, is that something that you, you can see? It's something I see kind of in others or something happening but it's also something I see in myself I have to remind myself all the time that um there doesn't always have to be like a visible product for how I spend my time and not everything has to be I mean kind of a mantra that I repeat throughout the book which comes from Derek Winnicott is this idea of the good enough that something I think probably we'd all be a lot happier if we just tried to be good enough at something rather than the best. And I, I'm a real perfectionist and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty hectic. I, I move quite frantically through, through life. So it's a real reminder to me to, you know, move on. Don't, don't, yeah, don't try and optimize everything. Don't try and, make something the best it can be i mean that's not to say i think that you should kind of half-ass it but i think maybe sometimes a bit more half-assing would would be good for us yeah because i guess what what i hear from a lot of people is that they they won't try they won't try things they won't give things a try they won't because they think they have to be perfect or because they it's difficult to to try something and not be good at it at first we kind of have this sense that we need to be somehow good at dancing before we'll go to a dance class or something like that i think that's because the stakes are much higher though we we don't really see much in the way of process we just see the finished result and 
And I think that's okay. I don't think we should have to see the making of everything in order to know that hard work's gone into it. But that also means that I think people have become obsessed with the processes of others. You know, well, how are they doing that in order to make that work? Perhaps if I can do that, then I can make that work. And also trying something new becomes so much scarier because um, everything is now preserved on the internet. You know, we are seeing a vast amount of kind of cancellations happening at the moment or attempted cancellations. I'm not even sure if I totally believe in cancel culture a lot of the time, but certainly like the idea of the takedown is um, very uh, seductive at the moment. You know, that every single day on Twitter, I see that someone else is being taken down or bids to cancel someone else. So. I think even if you know you don't have a platform online, you're still existing within a space where trying new things is really risky and failure is something that uh, will be preserved, um, will have posterity, um, which is a real shame because failures are really important. You know, look at, I mean, Elizabeth Day's brilliant podcast, How to Fail, failures are as important as successes. I'm really curious about your your take on cancel culture. And when you say you're not sure it, I can't remember the words you use. You're not sure it exists or something. Can you say a bit more about that? I think it. I think it exists anecdotally. So I think people trying to cancel someone uh, is real, and I think what that feels like is devastating. You know, I use the example of Taylor Swift in the book because there was a lot of you know hashtags calling to cancel Taylor Swift or Taylor Swift is over party. And that, that lasted a, a good year or two after she had this very public fallout with Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. But it wasn't enforced economically or physically. Taylor Swift was still allowed to exist within a public and private space. She didn't have her friends or family taken away from her. She didn't have her career taken away from her. She still brought out an album. So I think we need to be quite careful when we talk about cancel culture in that it's very rarely something that actually affects the way that we move through the world. Um, I'm sure the effects of it are devastating and I would be devastated to be cancelled. But the only kind of real examples of full cancellation I think we've seen are with people like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby. And that's because they're criminals and cancel culture should exist in that. But it's more, I think it's more of an anecdotal thing. I think it's something we do more in rhetoric and I don't agree with it. I think it's incredibly flattening and binary. And if we just cancel everyone we don't agree with, then no progress can be made and no one will be left. I interviewed Alan de Botton recently for my new podcast, doing it right. And he said, that he can see a possibility that one day we'll just have an island where everyone who is being cancelled can just go. And I think that's preferable. <laughs> just go to the island, be in Coventry, and then they can come back in. Maybe that's better than this absolutely mad scenario we see happening online now. Yeah, I think I think just avoiding Twitter. I think if I was getting cancer, I would just avoid Twitter and hope it would blow over. And sounds like it it probably would for most people. The results don't necessarily last forever. So 
I think yeah. disengagement is a good thing whether or not you're being cancelled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leave Twitter anyway. It's turning into quite a savage place, I'd say. One thing I really wanted to ask you about was FOMOG. FOMOG. <laughs> Can you say what that is? We've, we've heard of FOMO, but FOMOG. So I, I, didn't, I didn't come up with FOMOG. I think I got it from... So I wrote a piece for Sunday Times Style... Oh, was it two years ago? I've slightly lost track of time, like, like many people. I think it was two years ago. I think my daughter was about six months old. And I'd come across this acronym that I think had been created around a conversation that a young model called Laomi Anderson was having, where she was in her early 20s and she said that she felt like she was missing out on her goals, that she had these very um, ambitious goals for herself by the age of 25. And so this acronym kind of was created, which was FOMOG, Fear of Missing Out on Goals. And I sort of used that acronym to interrogate certain feelings I had been having about um, success or accomplishment in the wake of having my daughter. And I think what we've seen with this sort of dreadful hashtag of goals, you know, when I was growing up, goals was just something that like UCAS advisors talked about. It wasn't this kind of, uh, cultural collective aspiration that we saw become something really on social media and it's um, I think that goals can be quite damaging when we just look at them as the finished product it's what I was saying really about forgetting that things have process but also that as Shakespeare said you know joy is in the doing um, goals makes us look at just the the end goal it's it we don't take any pleasure or fulfillment in the journey and I definitely found that I was doing that I was falling foul of something that I call tick boxery where um a goal or an achievement was just something to tick rather than the process of getting there being something as important as the as the end result yeah I imagine it's something that's quite uh pertinent right now in that a lot of goals that people might have had whether that's finding a partner or getting married or having kids or going on holiday or doing certain things have just all been postponed because of lockdown and I think a lot of people might be resonating that they they feel like they're missing out on achieving the things they wanted to achieve or you know yeah doing those things so I think it it's nice that it has a name I think it's always nice yeah. that something has a name you can just pin it down and we can know that it's a thing and we're not, not the only ones that, that experience that I think ambitions are really important I think hope is really important but I think we have to look at why we're wanting to achieve what we want to achieve and be careful that it's not just in order to tick it off yes. that there's something a bit more holistic in it than that and that um we're not jumping straight to the end point always and then wondering why we don't feel fabulous um it's just i mean like most things in in modern life i think it's just about slowing down and checking in having like checkpoints along that along that journey yeah slowing down not not ticking things off a list not doing things for the sake of them enjoying the journey a bit more yeah 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 um Another, another thing that you mentioned in the book, which really gave, an, again, a, a word to something that I know lots of us experience in my house. This is probably one of the biggest 
issues that I face with my partner. Um, you mentioned about the kind of the cognitive load that, that women will quite often take on board in that. It's often the women that remember to buy the bin bags or make sure that, you know, the recycling is out on that certain day or the certain the things that we kind of juggle that maybe tend to fall on the women's shoulders. Can you can you uh, explain a bit more about that? Yeah, that came around because I wanted to really look at the concept of work as a whole. So not just work in the economic sense, but the work of the home as well. Um, and that can become quite political when you consider that most of the work of the home um, is still done by women. So even though the gap between working mothers and working fathers is closer than it's ever been, um, 75% of women currently work versus 91% of men. The gap in terms of the work of the home is still quite large. Uh, women do, I think, on average, 70 minutes more a day. Now, as the mother of two young children, I, I looked at that mostly through the lens of being a parent, but I think it exists whether or not you do have children. Obviously, children add a large care, you know, care load. Um, but there is still the cognitive load, the executive functioning, as, as one psychologist called it, of a household. And I wanted to look at how that kind of broke down through the term emotional labor, which has been kind of misunderstood and also become an umbrella term for quite a few different things. So I think that there are three categories to how the work of the home breaks down. There's the physical work, um, and for example, in my marriage, we have a 50, 50 physical, uh, breakdown of childcare. Um, and then there's the allostatic load, which is the wear and tear and the stress on the body. And then there's the cognitive work. And I came across some really interesting research by a Canadian psychologist called Darby Saxby about the cognitive work and the allostatic load. And I found that really, um, really freeing and really enlightening for me because I, I was confused that we were doing 50-50 of the physical work. So why was I feeling physically way more stressed and why was I feeling mentally more frazzled? And she said, well, it, you know, it might be that at the end of the day, you're still thinking about, um, well, do the children need more new school shoes? And when have I put uh, into the diary a date with our parents? And what about uh, the presents for my daughter's stocking? And I was doing all of that. And from talking to a lot of other people, it seemed like that was still um, a gendered thing. Now, that's absolutely not to criticise my husband, because the thing is, is I take that on voluntarily. And there's something that a neuroscientist said called Pat Levitt that I think about all the time, where he said... Um, uh, women have bought into the idea that they are better at it and that's the thing it's not that women are better at it it's not like we're born being better at that but we are socialized to think that we are and so it becomes easier to do it rather than to not so now I just what I do now is uh, and I know I'm sure this won't work for everyone um, this was just something that I looked at through quite a personal lens but what I do now is instead of remembering everything, I give some of the cognitive load to my husband. So I say, oh, um, 
we've run out of light bulbs could you get some more or um we uh we need to buy something for the children xyz could you sort that and it really does it frees up space in your brain because you there's only so many things you've got space for in your brain and if if your brain is totally full with the executive functioning of a household you haven't got room for anything else like things that feel good or that uh might teach you something mm, yeah i like that okay that's a good strategy to to try i find that sometimes it's easier for me to do it than have to ask my boyfriend five times to to do something it's easier short term but yeah. is it easier or rather is it healthier long term because then you get into patterns yeah um which is very very much something i see in my parents my parents have very traditional gender roles but i think I think it was something that I wanted to sort of think about because we are two full-time working parents. So it no longer becomes sense. I mean, I don't think even if you're a stay at home mum, you should do all the executive planning of a household. I mean, you're already doing the work of full-time childcare, which that is work. It might not be paid work, probably should be, but it's still work. So, um, Whoever's at home with the children or not at home with the children, no one should, yeah, no one should take on all of the wear and tear or the, or the thinking. Mm, yeah, yeah. Such an interesting topic. Yeah. Um, can you say a bit about your podcast? I saw that it is riding high on the charts, standing on the shoulders of Louis Theroux currently. So massive congratulations about that. I mean, a pleasure to be on the shoulders of Louis Theroux. If only it was in, in real life, not just in, <laughs> in the charts. That would be, that would be very exciting. Um, yeah, so I decided to do a solo podcast series when we realised we wouldn't be able to do a book tour. And I just really wanted the opportunity to have conversations with people. So it was kind of primarily a, a communication tool to look at quite loosely it's not um it's not like I've taken a chapter and then done a podcast episode on it but just to look at some of the themes uh and myths around modern life so it's an eight-part interview series my first one went out yesterday Monday the 6th of July with Joe Lyser and it's a mix of experts in their field and I suppose celebrities but the celebrities are also experts in their field like Joe Lysett is an expert comedian in his comedy field. Um, and it looks at what I am most interested in, which is the little things and the big things, you know, the trivial things and the serious things, because life is made up of both. And um, it was just an opportunity, really, for me to interview some of the people that I admire the most or have learnt the most from. Brilliant. And it's called Doing It Right. Right? It's, it's called doing it right yeah. and yes the subtext is there is no way to do it right there are many ways to do things <laughs> there is no answer yes. I will not I will not be answering basically I'm just probably quite annoying in that I just ask lots of questions whether it's in the book or in the podcast I want to encourage us to ask questions about our lives uh, rather than always trying to answer them yeah, that's such a reassuring message and definitely something that I took away from your book about we, we, yeah, it's this tendency we have again to think of things in binary. It's either right or wrong. It's perfect or it's a disaster. Actually, the truth is it's complicated. 
everyone's struggling with something and that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. And also we have to be, um, have the confidence to sit on the fence a bit. I think what we're seeing now is that, um, it's kind of gone out of fashion to be equivocal and that is really dangerous. I mean, I see it now even doing the high low, you know, people, uh, ask me to have conclusive views on things that I don't have conclusive views on. And I feel pushed to have a conclusive view. And I, I don't want to, I, I don't have opinions on everything. I'm still learning about so many things. And if we come out and state an opinion early on in that process, then we don't bother to go away and do more learning because we've, we've nailed our mast to the wall. Is that nailed our flag? Stamped our, God, what's the, me- <laughs> what's the metaphor? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, and it can be quite dangerous, I think, what we're seeing now with all the conspiracies and anti-vaxxers and people yeah. putting their stake in the sand. Is that another, another analogy? Um, and then once you've, once you've formed that really, really decisive opinion, it's maybe difficult to go back on it when you have new information. So maybe we do need to be quite careful. And a lot of those opinions are made within our particular context. Um, so like anti-vaxxers, you know, that's, that's often from a very privileged Western point of view. But what about where if you don't have vaccinations, you, you will die? It's, it's, it's as simple as that. And so anti-vaxxing makes me frustrated because it just comes from... Yeah, it comes from quite a privileged space where it's it's not a vaccination. It's not a matter of life or death. Mm, yeah, as someone that had whooping cough because my parents at the time were not keen on vaccines, they've changed their mind. Definitely recommend getting getting <laughs> vaccines. Whooping cough was awful. Um, yes. Anyway, thank you so much for everything that you've shared. Um, I think you're brilliant. Please, can you tell us where people can find out more about you um, and buy your book and that sort of thing? You can buy my book from any good retailer, I believe, online, offline. And you can find Doing It Right on um, your preferred podcast platform. So Spotify, Acast, uh, Apple, Apple Podcasts, it's now called. It's not iTunes anymore, is it? It's Apple Podcasts. And you can follow me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Pin Sykes. Pandora Sykes was taken. It's an egg. It's got zero followers. Don't get me started. <laughs> and I'm on Instagram. I'm not very interesting on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at Pandora Sykes. God, I'm not very good at the at the. I have to I have to get the sales the sales pattern down a bit more pitch. slickly, won't I? Sorry. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Brotheridge. Don't forget you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions. Please do subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app. And if you have enjoyed it or found it helpful, please leave me a review. It makes a massive difference to helping the podcast get discovered by other people. And come on over and find me on Instagram. I'm hanging out there every day. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please do share it with anyone who might need to hear this today. So I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a brilliant week ahead. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.